Good morning. Today we are doing uh, Hebrews 11 and, and walking through, for those of you who are new to the class, uh, we go through a chapter two of a book of the Bible every week. We've been going through Hebrews over the last several weeks, and um, as I'm notorious for doing, uh, I tend to take this class on a journey that you may or may not expect. So if you have read Hebrews 11 uh, before this class, and that's the, the uh, chapter we're talking about today, you may be looking at the, the board and going, ah, oh, geez. The nature of science. Here we go. Last week it was Greek 101. This week, nature of science. Brian, what are you doing to us? Literally, this is the last week we'll ever come. That's fine. Um, well, it's not fine. I want you to come back. But what I'm saying here is that Hebrews 11 is kind of like the big guns of Hebrews. And, and uh, just to really recap, Hebrews written probably by a Jew who became a Christian in the first century, probably written by a group of people because in several cases, the author refers to himself as we. We want you to do this. We want you to do that. So it seems as though it's written by a community, probably by a single person who's kind of spearheading this. Maybe it's Paul. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's someone who Paul trained. We don't know. It's certainly not autographed by Paul. And so it doesn't matter because we can derive a lot from this author by what he is writing. What he is writing is a lot to do with the Old Testament. And obviously this author is making the case to an audience of like-minded people like himself, people who grew up as Jews in the Jewish community, who now have to wrestle with the fact that Jesus has come on the scene, has said a lot of very impactful things, the community of Christians is growing around the whole Mediterranean, and now the Jewish people have to start to wrestle with this fact of, is this guy really the Messiah that we expected? The author of Hebrews, goes to great pains to be able to lay out a case that Jesus is the Messiah of the Old Testament. Now, I say in this class, know your audience, right? And obviously the author of Hebrews knows his audience because he goes to great length to quote the Old Testament. What is the Old Testament? The Old Testament is simply the Bible for Jews, right? What we call the Old Testament is just the Bible, the law, the prophets, and the writings. Good morning. The Tanakh is what a, a Jew of the first century would have called it. The Old Testament is just the Bible. It's a set of authoritative writings in which Jews said, this is, this is our holy, and they wouldn't have used the word canon in the first century, not until after the Christians started to develop a canon, but they would have said these are authoritative. Authoritative scriptures that point to who God is, and more importantly, who the Messiah will be when the Messiah comes. The author of Hebrews is making the case Jesus was that Messiah, and he's using a lot of scripture from the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, to prove that. Hebrews 11 is the big guns of Hebrews. We only have, what, 13, 14 chapters? I think there's 14, no, 13. 13 chapters in Hebrews. We're almost to the end, and you know, if, if you're a student, uh, or if you have to write uh, papers or publish work, you, you tend to save your big arguments, your best arguments for the end. You start with the, the small potatoes and you work your way up and at the end you, you roll out the big guns and you really hit them with everything you've got. Hebrews 11 is the big guns because he is now going to go through systematically a review of the entire Old Testament and what you might call the heroes of the Old Testament, the heroes, the heroes of the Jewish faith and prove, according to this author, that each one of those great heroes of Jewish faith were acting on faith and belief and trust in God, even though those people may or may not have experienced the reward that was promised to them during their lifetimes. 
But before we get into that, I think we have to address what is sometimes an elephant in the room when it comes to this chapter. And from the very first verse, in fact, I'll just read it before we get into it. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Full stop. That is used almost universally by Christians around the world to say, see scientists? It doesn't matter if there's proof. We don't have to have proof. We can believe that God is who he says he is. And I say to that, full stop, you're absolutely wrong. I say you're full of crap. My point today is this. We're going to look at what the nature of science is. And I've done this in this class before, and I get a lot of, you know, I'm sure like the shark guys, they roll back in the head and they're like, I can't take this, right? What are we talking about science in here all the time for? First, this is not an apologetics class, and I make it very clear, I don't do apologetics. Okay, apologia means to defend, right, orally. I don't defend my faith. My position is that I don't argue with anyone about anything because you're free to believe whatever you want to or not want to believe. When you get into an argument with someone, 99% of the time they will become entrenched in their position no matter how ludicrous or illogical it is because they just don't want to agree with you. So I don't do it. I don't argue. I don't debate. My philosophy is... I share truth. I share truth. And I live that truth by the example of my actions and my behavior. You're free to agree or disagree with it. You know? That's on you. It's not on me. And so what I'm going to do today is talk about <clears throat> why you should not see faith as something different from reason. <laughs> the truth is, Even the author, I would argue, of Hebrews doesn't see them as different things. So the first thing we have to do is look at what do we mean. Now, the first thing, and again, this does have meaning because when we get back into this chapter, it will make a lot more sense. What do we mean by faith or or reason? Well, as a trained uh, science educator, and and we have a couple of those in here today, thankfully, um, one of the things that is very important for a science teacher to understand is the nature of science. So... A lot of times, a science teacher doesn't work in science. If they if maybe they've they've spent a, a you know a summer or two as an intern or something like that, maybe um, <clears throat> you know they've 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 uh, maybe maybe done some kind of summer program in a laboratory where they worked with an actual working uh, set of scientists who are actually working on problems and trying to publish them. But for the most part, a lot of science teachers have not actually been scientists. And what I mean by that is they have not worked as scientists to essentially do research and publish their findings and make proposals and draw conclusions. So it's really important that we understand exactly how science really works. I have worked as a scientist. I've worked as a scientist for, I don't know, 20-some years. I'm not going to say how many. I know how it works. And I think this is really important. And when we get trained in the nature of science, this is right. And and if you're a science educator and you've been trained in uh, NOS or nature of science, this is true. And it gets at the heart of what we mean by the difference between faith and reason. Let's start at the beginning. And I promise this won't take the whole time. Science is not about obvious facts. And I know that sounds weird. We, yes. What is an atom? Now, this might surprise you. I, pr- I promise I'm going somewhere. I'm already losing someone. I promise this gets better. Please, come back. <laughs> this might surprise you. 
No human being has ever seen an atom. Okay, you think that they've seen one. But Brian, I have a science textbook, and it, it shows these, uh, these, this cluster of, of you know, balls in the middle of this thing, and they've got these little tiny balls going around it. No, 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 no. Oh, but Brian, I've, I've seen electron micrographs from a scanning tunneling microscope with these little bumps. No, 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 you have not seen an atom. No human has ever seen an atom. What is an atom? Tell me, just if you know. Basic building block of everything, all matter, right? All matter, composed of what? So right there, you have a perfect model <laughs> for what science is. Science is based on models, not, and I know this is going to sound weird, <laughs> not reality. Is the sun hot? Yes. How do you know? Have you touched it? Ah. What is, an at what, is, what is a black hole? I don't know. What is the fourth dimension? I have no idea. What is an atom? Guess what? <laughs> science, this gets, gets, gets at the heart of the matter. 90% of science is about measuring what you cannot measure. No human has ever seen an atom. How did we come to find out what an atom is made of? Over many years, and a lot of failure, human beings came up with models for what they think describes what an atom really is. J.J. Thompson didn't lift up a rock and say, oh, I've discovered the electron. <laughs> mm, it's not a fly that's buzzing his face. Oh, look, I got it, it's an electron. Oh, it got away. James Chadwick never discovered the neutron by stumbling over it. Oh. What did I just, by Jove, I've just discovered the neutron, right? That's not how this works. Now, a physical example of what I'm talking about is what we used in our uh, Nature of Science classes. We would have this magical mystery tube constructed of PVC and a whole bunch of rope that came out of it. You were not allowed to break open the tube and look inside. Why? because this is how science works. You cannot see an atom. You can't see the center of the Earth, and you can't touch the sun. So, you have to collect evidence that supports your model of what you think is going on inside of this mystery tube. What is an atom? What is it composed of? What is the sun made of? How do I know that fusion goes on in the middle of the sun? What is fusion, right? So what we had to do in class was we, we each got to take our mystery tube and we got to do measurements on it. We got to test it. You could weigh it. You could interact with it. You could pull these strings and see what happens. Guess what? A lot of our tubes, and everyone was different, a lot of our tubes had a clanking sound inside. Some didn't, some did. So every group of students had to come up with a model that described what they thought was on the inside of this. We never got to see what was on the inside of this. The only thing we could do was make our best case, and then we had to present it to the class. We, my team, we theorized, had what we thought was two loops. So really this was not four strings, it was two strings. Now right off the bat you'll go, well Brian, how do you know? There's four strings coming up. No, I think it's actually only two strings. And looped around those, we thought, we theorized, was a key. 
maybe two keys, we weren't really sure. Because whenever we pulled it, we would hear a clanking sound that would then travel up the tube until the string came all the way out. And when we let it go, we'd hear the thing clink back down, but it obviously was connected. This is how science works, folks. This is how science works. Every day in a laboratory, when someone says they know what COVID virus is, or they know what smallpox is, or they know what genes a corn plant has so that they're going to make more genes of this corn plant to make this corn plant bigger and better. Guess what? No one has actually physically seen DNA either. You've seen electron micrographs of crystalline structure that looks like a double helix. You have not actually seen a DNA strand. Scientists spend 90% of their time trying to prove their model is true. And guess how this works in science? <clears throat> the model with the best arguments, and I put that in a lot of quotes, with the most number of people con conceding that that's probably true, is truth. Truth is consensus and a lack of evidence to reject it. Now, this is also weird. How many of you have taken statistics in your life at any point in your life? Raise your hands. Statistics is not about proving anything. Statistics is about not being able to disprove something. Huh? When you do the hypothesis, you're actually testing a null hypothesis. I'm, I'm not gonna go down this rabbit hole. What you are actually doing is your measurements cannot prove that there is no effect. That is statistics. Statistics is all about the opposite of what you think it is. It's never about proving something is true. It's about I cannot reject that it isn't true. Huh? I made a model and I gave my evidence and most of the class was fairly, yeah, okay, we agree with that. Guess what? That's truth now. That's truth. Okay, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Yep. We'll get to that. Just stay with me for just a minute here because this is really important. No, it's, it's all good. And I do want feedback, but I just want to take us through this so we don't get lost. For about 500 years, 400 years, all scientists were convinced that the universe was filled with a substance called, do you know it? Ether. The ether. The whole universe existed, guess what? Until the 20th century, no human had ever been to space. And we didn't know what was really up in the sky. Most of human history thought the sky was made of water, the waters of the heavens and the waters of the earth. Why? Because when you look up on a sunny day, what color is the sky? It's water. <laughs> it's water. And the only reason it rains is because once in a while, the curtain opens and the rain comes down, right? For all of human history, people thought water covered the sky. Around the Enlightenment, around the 16th and 17th century, people started to get wise and think, well, maybe there isn't water above our heads, but they didn't know what was above their heads. And the biggest problem of all came in the 19th century with the measurement of the speed of light. Again, I'm not gonna go down a rabbit hole. Light is very weird. Light is very fast. How fast is light? A clap of thunder. You know this, lightning strikes. And what do you do to see how far away it is? 
you count. And one, one thousand, two, one thousand, three, one thousand, four, one thousand, five, boom. How far away is that lightning bolt? Five counts. Five counts. <laughs> Sound travels at 700 miles per hour at sea level under normal conditions. 700 miles per hour. Light travels 700 million miles per hour. Think about that for a minute. Light is incredibly fast, but it's not infinitely fast. It turns out that no matter how you measure light, either an object coming very quickly towards you or very quickly away, the speed of light is exactly the same. Now, I'm not going to get into why that is, and if you're a science person, you know that's weird because for a lot of reasons. <laughs> no one could understand why the speed of light is always exactly the same no matter how they measured it. It didn't make any sense, and the prevailing theory among almost all scientists until the turn of the 20th century was that ether, this mysterious substance that filled the universe, pushed light or pulled light so that it always went the same speed. Albert Einstein said, you are full of crap. There is no such thing as ether. And a big rabbit hole I'm not going to get down is how he proved that, this idea of special relativity. Light is a constant because of the structure of the universe. Long story short, when he came out with his theory of special relativity in the early, early 1900s, he was almost uniformly rejected by all scientists at the time. He did not have consensus, and they said that his evidence, which he, was, he said was extensive, was crap. Guess what? Who was right? This is the nature of science, folks. It is not a machine that someone puts something into and it comes out with truth. Science is a human endeavor. Not operated by robots, but by humans. Ether was truth until around 1905. And now, over time, guess what? Guess what? People are still trying to disprove Einstein. I know that sounds weird. Space probes go out into the universe and they measure things like pulsars. You don't want to know. This is, a, this is a rabbit hole. They measure the light, the radio light coming from a pulsar, or they measure the, the um, microwave light or x-ray light coming from the sun as the probe is going away and towards it. Guess what? It's always exactly the same. Einstein is right. And 100 years later, you still have scientists who still not 100% believe that Einstein was right. This is the nature of science. Science does not give you unequivocal 100% truth. It gives you what people say is true until they have a better model to replace it. Okay? Now, think about that for just a minute. Okay? I want you to now contrast that, because this is probably a big deal, and if you've never heard that before, you're probably going to process this for, the, for a while, and it takes time, and I get that. This gets at a big part of what has become in the 20th and 21st century this big argument about faith and reason, how they're two different things. Okay? I want you to remember something, and I'm, because I'm going to tell you it. Well, let me ask you first. When I say miracle to you, tell me what you think that means. When we say miracle, we tend to assume it's defying something. What are we saying it's defying? Yes. Defying 
natural law. And it's always good. I mean, ah, okay. Ah, okay. That's a good religious take on it. I love that. I love that. Um, I want to just tell you right now, and your English translations of the Bible, every single one of them translates a particular word we're going to talk about as miracle or sign. There's two different ones that are used in the Old and New Testaments, um, or proof, I should say, proof or miracle. I want you to understand this very carefully, very carefully. There is no such thing as that concept of miracle in the Bible. Let me say that again. The modern view of miracle as being some kind of breaking of natural law is not part of the Old or New Testaments. Every time the scriptures refer to miracle or proof, they're using actually almost always one of two words. Dunamis or dunamao, which is the verb, <coughs> which is dynamo, which is what? What's a dynamo? If you're a science person, it's an engine. It makes power, and in fact, that is the meaning. This is the word that is used in the Bible 90% of the time when we say miracle. It means power, ability. Anytime you, you write in the, in the Older New Testaments in, in Greek and you say, he is able to do this or he is able to do that or the ruler had authority over this or authority over that, they're almost always using this word power. Dunamis or dunamao, it just means ability to do something. It says nothing about defying the laws of nature, ever, ever. And the second word that's often used is, if I can remember how to spell it, say, man, I think it's Samaian. It's a sign. <laughs> um, John, John's gospel makes a big deal of this word because the Pharisees kept coming to Jesus and saying, we want a sign that you are who you say you are. Say Mayan. It's, a, it's, it's proof. That's all this means, proof. Look, to the authors of the Old and New Testament, proof and power simply mean, I have authority over you. I am able to lift this rock. That's power. Um, it doesn't mean I'm defying the laws of physics. Uh, I have the ability to work every day. I have the authority to rule over you because I'm powerful over you. Um, what's your proof? That your donkey is dead. Well, he's dead. <laughs> His head's missing. That's my, that's my Samaian. This modern concept that somehow miracle is, is some kind of defying of the natural law of the universe is bullcrap. It is, it is a twist of Satan that he has used to turn people away from God because he makes you want to think believing in God is some kind of thing you've got to just close your eyes and hope for the best. The New Testament is full of evidence to prove your faith. And I'm going to make this comment here. The only way that people still believe that God exists in the world, and forget for a minute, even if you're not a Christian, what if you're a Hindu? Well, guess what? There's still a God <laughs> over the universe. Or you're a Buddhist. Or you're a Jew. 
guess what? My argument is this. The evidence is still there. The empirical, observable, measurable evidence is still there that God is real and he's interacting in your life and blessing you. In this case, it has to do with what you accept as evidence. Okay? If you were a 19th century physicist, you would have rejected the special theory of relativity because you thought it was crap. Your definition of what you considered empirical evidence was different from Albert Einstein. You both used empirical evidence. You both observed the universe using your own special experiments and your eyes and your ears, but you drew very different conclusions. Faith in the Bible is almost always backed up with what? Evidence, actions. How do we know Jesus was who he says he was? Because he calmed the storm. <laughs> and anyone who can calm Mother Nature has power over Mother Nature. Power, dunamis. How do we know that Jesus was the, the Messiah? Because he raised himself from the dead and many, many, many people witnessed it. Eyewitnesses witnessed it. This is not written by a bunch of people trying to pull one over on you. And if you think it is, you got a lot coming. The people who suffered and died to write this and put this into words didn't do it because they were trying to get something out of it. All of Jesus' disciples, except for we think John, were killed for their belief. And even John was imprisoned for many years until he probably did die in, in captivity. They didn't get anything out of it, folks. And I would argue that you are here today because you have what you believe to be evidence that God is interacting in your life in some way. The point is, what do you consider that evidence? What would you consider to be evidence that God is influencing your life, Ken? <clears throat> well, uh, in 2000, I took a fall from about 25 feet. Okay. Got busted up a little bit. Yep. And died. Yep. Took the place. Ended up in the hospital. Took the place of a guy who fell off a step ladder and was paralyzed from the neck down. Okay. Obviously, God was working in that day to day. Have okay. real relationships with people that care about me. Okay. <clears throat> How many of you keep a prayer journal? I know. Guess what? I don't believe there's God because there's no proof. Well, are you keeping a prayer journal? Well, no. Well, maybe you ought to start doing it. Guess what? How many times have I, I'm going to be honest with you? And I'm not bragging. God has answered my prayers, and he's not a vending machine. Let me be very clear about this. God is not a vending machine, and you cannot judge his existence or his absence based on, well, God, I really want to win this lotto. It's a billion dollars, and if you give it to me, I'll give all this money to the church, and I didn't win it, so I don't believe that you exist. God is not a vending machine. He's looking down at your request like, oh, 
So you never talk to me. You don't have a relationship with me. You haven't raised your children as Christians. I never see you in church. You don't have a living act of faith. But now you want some. I, suddenly I get a phone call in the middle of the night. And the, yeah, he's smoking. Um, and you want, you want a billion dollars and you're going to be a great human. Guess what? He's like, guess what? You're going to start somewhere else. You're not going to start with that lotto. I will, I, will, I will tell you, God has answered, I would say at least, at least 90% of my prayers, literally and directly. Well, now, the that's the thing. And, and some t- the 10% I leave out is because he doesn't always give me what I ask for because I don't always know what's best for me. It's not 50-50. Can I just say it that way? If God doesn't exist and I am just breathing into the ether, I could flip a coin and do just as good. I could flip a coin and do just as good. God is not a vending machine. A vast majority of the time, God answers my prayers eventually. Guess what I have to now reject? The null hypothesis is there is no God. I have to reject that hypothesis. It means there is some being out there that is answering my prayers. What else? Brian, we were talking about that this morning when you yeah. came in. Yep. Um, are we watching for what God is doing? If we're not, if you said if you're not journaling, you're not keeping track of that. I can see that God, God's doing something, something pretty slow to us every day. Yep. If we're not looking for that, we're not going to notice it. The problem is, and it's a hard thing, I have been on this journey for 40 years where it's basically, I have been an atheist, I have been a, a, a passionate Christian, I am a passionate Christian, I have known a lot of atheists. Atheism is a problem of the heart, period. Guess what? There are so many people that are willing to dial their skepticism meter up so high that no amount of evidence will ever convince them. They won't even consider it evidence. People went to their graves saying Albert Einstein was a fluke. They rejected him. They hated him. I can't tell you how much pe- people hated Albert Einstein. They still hate him. Why? Because we hate people who are right. <laughs> we hate people who are right. They went to their deathbed saying, you are wrong, Albert Einstein, and I don't care. 100 years, 1,000 years from now, we're going to prove you wrong. It's a heart thing. It's a heart thing. People reject God because they have broken families. Because they have had death close to them. Because their sister is gay. Because they grew up in poverty. Because when they were down and out, a Christian said something to them that they didn't like. So now they hate all Christians and I don't believe in God. It's a heart thing, folks. It's a heart thing. What else? What other evidence do you have in your life that God is active and real? Well, people go on mission trips. Okay. The reason they go is that it makes sense. Why would you because they go overseas and for There we go. Motivation for selfless helping of others. Yep. Does you know good? Just general goodness to other people. Yep. Okay. Yeah. There we go. Personal peace. Could you have invented photosynthesis? (laughs) 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 
is, is too complex for random creation. How many of you have, I'm gonna, Mary is absolutely right, how many of you have seen a, a metabolic chart of the human metabolism? You tell me that it's terrible because it is so complex. You're like, I, I'm just going to tell you right now, a single-celled organism, a yeast that you would use to make bread, is infinitely more complex than the most vast computer or mechanical device ever invented by mankind or humankind. It's not even close, folks. And yet, that tiny thing that you can't even see with your eye that is infinitely more complex than the most advanced computer system can self-replicate, can heal itself, can make more of itself, can adapt to its conditions, can go dormant when things go rough, and it can make delicious bread and beer. In that order. That order. That order. You know, what's neat about faith yep. is that uh, your evidence or your past experiences don't have to be specifically yours. Ah. You are sitting in the midst of a miracle that happened to your church family 20 years ago. I was, gonna, I was thinking Trisha the whole time. Uh, but, I mean, you can use sure. Dan. Yep. I mean, there, there are so many things that we, you know, our, our limited vision is, you know, skews our reasoning. Yep. I want to I want to chase this just a little bit. I'm a nerd and I love to read science papers. What's wrong with me, dude? It's it's awful until you don't have to do it, and then I'm like downloading them. Um, <clears throat> NK cell lymphoma, I think that's what you had, is that right? Is one of the most deadly diseases on Earth. Um, it's rare. It happens a lot in other countries. It doesn't happen very much in the Western world. Um, I did a lot of research on this at the time. It turns out that the mortality rate is about 95 percent mortality rate, typically because of many factors. One is because by the time it's caught, it's usually too late, because treatments for it are not usually effective. Here's the thing. By the time a patient has to have a full stem cell replacement, guess what the mortality rate generally is? 100%. As far as I know, and I still think we should do a paper on this, I think Trisha Edema is the only person on earth who has survived an NK cell lymphoma because of a total stem cell reply. I'm sorry I'm giving your, your life history away. Maybe you don't want it for HEPA reasons. This is a safe place. Please do not repeat this. Folks, that is a miracle. That is a miracle. What more do you need? 
What more do you need? And that is science. That is science. You, you have to reject the null hypothesis. It is not random chance, folks. The reason we have a prayer room at this place is because, largely, of Trisha Edema. We prayed for years that she would be healed, and it was not an easy journey, as she can attest, and there was a lot of setbacks and a lot of bumps. But we were faithful. We were a faithful body of brothers and sisters, and we kept praying, and we said, God, we know you can heal her. You have proven time and again through your actions that you are who you say you are. You have changed my life. I'm just going to say right now, changed lives are the most significant evidence you will ever see for a Christian brother and sister. Your changed life. How many changed lives have there been because of Jesus of Nazareth? Vast. Vast. It's vast. But so what if someone's not healed? I mean, that's the argument, yeah. right? So you pray, pray, yeah. pray. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. so now what is, like, well, it didn't happen. So, therefore, God has chosen to take them home. Yeah, well, so I'm just Guess what? Yeah. Guess what? I've said this a hundred times, and, and, and it's true. You don't always know what the hell you're praying for. You don't. Lee Strobel is a atheist turned Christian who was a journalist in Chicago, and I've told this story before, and I'll tell it a hundred more times. He wanted to bring his fellow journalist co-worker to Christ, and he prayed desperately, that he, because it was his best friend at work, that his friend would come to Christ, and that he could play a part in that. And one night, he got all his ducks in a row, and his friend was working late, and he was working late, he decided, this is the moment, I'm going to do it. And I, I think most of you have heard this story. He spent the next, I don't know, two hours sitting with his friend in his cubicle, sharing the gospel. You know what, my friend? I want you to know Jesus. And here's the gospel. Jesus died so that you can, you can be bought back from Satan and death and you can have eternal life. He gave his life as a ransom for your soul that you didn't deserve and you had willingly given to, to Satan for free, but Jesus paid a huge price to get you back. And all you have to do is accept that wonderful gift and you can spend eternity with your creator in paradise. He went through this whole thing. Evidence for his changed life. Evidence for other changed lives. Evidence for miracles. And guess what at the end? The journalist was like, you know what, Lee? I appreciate what you're doing. You're obviously very passionate about your religion. You're a very religious guy. I don't, I don't care. I don't. I, I, don't want, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but I'm not religious. I think it's all a bunch of crap. And thank you, but no thank you. I don't want to have anything to do with it. Well, guess what he would have thought after that? I failed. God failed. I prayed. I prayed. Vending machine. Marlboro Lights. I keep pushing that button. It's not coming out. You remember, they used to sell cigarettes. Okay. (laughs) I know. (laughs) But hey, hang on. So then what happens? Years later... He's a public speaker now. He's, very, he's a published author. The case for Christ. The case for faith. The case for a creator. It can go on and on. 
Years later, he's speaking at a church and kind of telling his testimony, and, and this person comes up to him and says, and I'm going to cry, I do every time I say this. He said, Lee, you don't know me. I was the janitor cleaning up after hours when you were giving your testimony to your coworker years ago at the newspaper, and I heard every word you said, and I gave my life to Christ that night. Your prayer works, whether you realize it or not. It works, and it doesn't always work the way you want it to, because guess what? You're not in charge of the universe, and you see this much. Look, look how much you see. Squish. (laughs) And it's in his timing. You have to be open-minded about what you consider to be evidence, and you have to be realistic. And at some point, your heart is going to get in the way of that. You're going to come to a fork in the road where you're going to do all of the logical, rational thinking and empirical evidencing, and at some point, there's going to be a convergence where you're going to have to decide if your heart's going to stop you or not from going any further. The evidence is clear. The evidence is clear. And if you read Lee Strobel's books, he writes so perfectly about this. The evidence is overwhelmingly clear. The case for a creator is solid. It is solid. It is solid. You are not a mistake. You are not an accident. You are not an accident. And at some point, your heart's going to have to decide, are you willing to go further or not? Because I'm going to tell you right now, if you reject it, it's because your heart rejected it. I don't want to believe it. I don't want to accept it. I hate God, and I'm never going to be a part of it. And I'm going to show him. Well, guess what? You're not going to show him anything except tears because he loves you unconditionally. He loves you unconditionally. Let's read (laughs) Hebrews 11. With that in mind, with that in mind, I want you to reinterpret Hebrews 11 based on what the author is trying to say. Who would like to read Hebrews 11 for me? Thank you, ma'am. Now faith is confidence in what we hope and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel brought to God a better offering than Cain. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For he was taken. He was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built the ark to save his family. By faith, he was commended. By faith, the world was condemned, and and he became heir of righteousness, that is, in keeping with faith. 
By faith, Abram, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, he obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with a foundation, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand in the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things they, that, we, that they were promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers in the earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had, had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abram, even when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promise was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abram reasoned that God could even raise Isaac from the dead, and so in a matter of speaking, he did, receive, he did raise him from the dead. He did receive Isaac back from death. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each, each of Joseph's sons and worshiped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave them instruction concerning the burial of his bones. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. He regarded this grace for the sake of Christ as greater value than the treasure of Egypt. Because he was looking ahead, he was looking forward to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the application of blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn could not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as, on, as they were on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, she was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Sam Samson, 
and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through fate conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so they might gain better resurrection. Some faced jeers and floggings, and some chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskin, goatskin, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something far better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. I'm going to shut up. This is your chance now. What's your feedback? Questions? Comments? I struggle to see myself doing any of those things. Yeah, I don't want to give a person saw in half. I mean, from the very beginning, giving the better you know, sacrifice. Every single one of those things. If you're going to send me where? Do what? And then I never get it? Really? That's heavy stuff. Having faith in God doesn't guarantee you a rosy outcome. In fact, it almost assures you of the opposite of that. In the short term. Right. Yeah, the world is going to reject you. The world is going to treat you poorly. But in the end, that <clears throat> faith is what's going to save you. I've often thought of, again, I'll shut up, but I've often thought of like, you know, at work or at church, um, amongst my friends, what kind of person do I want to be? And you know, the truth is, no matter what I do, or how much I try to please others, or how much I try to change to make others happy, how many people am I going to make happy in this world? 100%? I'll be lucky if I hit 50%. So I've decided, you know what, if I'm going to go out, and I am going out, and I'm, you know, People will hate me no matter what I do, and they'll reject me. I'm going to go out on my own terms. I'm going to do what I think is right. Let the chips fall where they may. My eternity is secured. What else? Is our faith dependent on results, the miracles, the yeah. answer prayers? No, you look, and Job is a different book. But mm -hmm. he said, curse God. Mm -hmm. You're not getting what he did. All, yeah. these, all these things happened. Curse God. Mm -hmm. He said, no. I'm not going to curse God. Is your, how, how dependent is your faith on the answers? Do you want the lottery or do you want your heart? Okay, one or the other. Well, I like chapter, verse 13. All these people were still living by faith when they died. Yeah. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. Mm -hmm. It's not about the here and now. <coughs> it's 
it's, it's beyond here and now. How many of you feel like a stranger right now on this planet? <laughs> kind of funny i have my email deletes after a year which is a good thing because i get a lot of email every once in a while i'll go back and look what did i care about a year ago i'm going to tell you a i've forgotten all about it b it was stuff that was so petty i'm looking back on it laughing like i cared so much about that thing and it didn't matter at all it didn't matter at all it didn't matter what else There was a lady that went to church for a long time, never came to Christ, and she was a minister, got done preaching one day, and she went up to him and told him everything she felt he had said wrong and done wrong. Mm -hmm. And he said, is there anything else that I didn't, that you didn't like about what I did? said, he said, no. He says, well, thank you for telling me. I'm glad you did. And she came to Christ. And he asked her later, he says, why after all those years, you didn't, all this time, you didn't come until, she says, I realized you were genuine. Mm. <clears throat> but I think all of this, you can have the preponderance of evidence, even like, you know, with, with Einstein and, you know, his theory, people's hearts were blind to it because... <clears throat> It was something new, something different, something that changed their paradigm until their hearts were ready for that evidence to show them the, the more correct way. It's the same in faith. You can present as much evidence as you want for what the natural is, what God's word is, what God's plan is, but if your heart isn't ready for it, it's not going to happen. Elders deal with that too, don't they? So... But, you know, that's, you know, something that there's a lot of in this world. People's hearts are hardened towards God and God's principles because it's not, you know, letting them be who they want to be. That's it. That's it. You know, and, you know, then they question people that, you know, come out and, and try to present the truth and, and you know, go negative on it. Then you're a hater. You're, yep. You know, it's like, well, no, this, this is the opposite of that. I'm sharing the truth in love because I want you to know what the truth is and I value that. You know, we want to try to save as many people from, from hell as possible, but then you continue to get, you know, the, the fight back from them. And I was like, that's just because their heart is ready to receive the truth. What's a good action item or action items then, Rodney, to deal with that? And this could apply to anything, not just sharing the gospel. What can we do? A lot of it is just, you know, continue to pray for that person, pray specifically yep. that yep. Uh, the Holy Spirit will work in them. Yep. And, you know, you continue to show them those folks love and, you know, show them the love of Christ. And then when their heart is ready, they'll, they'll be ready to hear. Gosh, this is a great list. I think we also need to equip ourselves. Ah, there we go. So we, we can't just do part of what people take. I mean, we have to be in the scripture. <clears throat> God's word. How the heck are we going to share God's word if we don't know it better? Yep. Ourselves. There you go. 
when COVID, he would find out where the person was at in their region. There we go. Leave or whatever. And then he'd go from there to try to. Gosh, this is so good. The way I understood it. Correct me if I'm wrong. Know your audience. I think Jesus knew his audience. Every time he interacted with someone, he he had a sharp tongue. He got him right where he knew what would get him. Whether you were a Roman centurion, a Pharisee, a priest, or a Syrio-Phoenician woman, he knew exactly who you were and what it took to communicate with you. There was a man in the military sitting on his bunk and he read Reminds me of one of my favorite quotes says it is a noble man who plants a seed to a tree that may provide shade for someone someday that he never needs. That's awesome. Instead of because trust says I don't have to I don't have to have the outcome that I hope for mm-hmm. to do anything right. Can I just leave us and I love that, leave us with this one last thought. You are not going to change anybody. I think this is really important you know this. I, I make a big deal about changed lives. Changed lives is the biggest evidence of all that Jesus is who he says he is. Who changes lives? God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The gospel changes lives. The gospel changes lives. And we can't take it personally. You, Billy Graham, Paul the Apostle, name your great Christian never changed a single life. You were the conduit. You, you did your part. The gospel changes lives. And the most important thing of all is a person is not going to change until they want to. They're not going to change until they want to. They have to see a reason to change and they have to be willing to accept that change. And that is the only time people change. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next week. 